1: Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK.
0: When there were these rumors that Musk was going to buy Twitter, I personally was like, yes, please let him buy Twitter and please let him destroy it, because I think it's been pretty bad for at least my mental health, for my work-life balance. But now that the end of Twitter actually seems like a possibility, I'm like, oh my God, how am I going to do my job?
2: You're not the only one.
0: (laughs) Ah, Twitter. It's safe to say it's the preferred virtual meeting space within the EU quarter, among officials, political actors, and, yeah, definitely journalists. But is that going to last? Will Brussels bubble dwellers have to face a world without Twitter? I'm Sarah Wheaton, Politico's chief policy correspondent, filling in for Suzanne this week. And yes, I'm being a bit dramatic about the current state of Twitter and how it impacts how the EU bubble operates. Or am I? Today, we're going to peel back the curtain as to how much influence the platform has on the day-to-day workings of Brussels. We'll get into the firing spree Elon Musk has enacted across the world and how it's hitting Europe. And we'll consider the legal issues he could be facing in the European Union. Then we'll turn our focus back to the war in Ukraine. We have an exclusive interview with Kyiv Mayor Vitaly Klitschko discussing how he's preparing his city for the cold winter months ahead.
3: The main goals of uh, his records attack to bring depression to the people and leave the country.
0: And finally, I talked to the author of a new book called Superstates, Empires of the 21st Century. We'll debate the challenges faced by the EU as a so-called superstate and what it can learn from others, such as the United States, India, and even China.
4: We have this notion in political science that a good Polity is one that's stable, it's solid, it's not crisis-prone. And then when you look at a polity like the EU, you say, wait a minute, you know, it doesn't meet those criteria. But one of the arguments I make is that instability or fragility is sort of inherent in all of these supersized polities. And you can see concerns about fragility coming up again in the U.S., you can see it in India, it's a historic concern. The Chinese obsess about stability maintenance. Everybody's dealing with this question of how you hold things together.
0: But first, let's talk Twitter with our technology and competition editor, Aoife White. Hi, Aoife. Hi, Sarah. And Politico's editor-at-large, Nick Vineker. Also, I'll do the plug for him, new Friday playbook writer, starting very soon. Hi, Nick. Thank you, Sarah. So, Nick, let me ask you, when did you first join Twitter? Uh,
2: according to my Twitter profile, March 2012, if you can believe it.
0: I can. I can. I, I might have even thought it would be earlier. Eva, how are you doing with that? When did you first join? Oh, I only
5: just checked and it was the month I got married, September 2010. I would All have thought right. I had
0: better things to do, but apparently
5: not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I apparently have had nothing better to do for a very long time because I joined in April 2007. Um, and so I'm going to take that privilege to share a little bit of insight about what I learned over the past few days talking to lobbyists and comms experts about how important Twitter is in the Brussels bubble. So I was a little skeptical because I'm like, well, real people are not on Twitter, so why? why is it important in Brussels? Because it doesn't really help you keep in touch with the regular folks. But in fact, it's because this network of journalists and policy geeks and MEPs are on Twitter that it is a really important tool for the bubble, an important tool for lobbyists. There was even a PR firm, BCW, that did a poll of commission officials, MEPs, influencers to see what they find to be credible news sources. And Twitter was the only social media platform that cracked the top 10. So clearly, the bubble is on Twitter. It's a really important part of life. And Nick, what are you seeing as far as how people are reacting?
2: I saw a lot of people say, uh, find me on Mastodon. I'm bringing my show over there. Uh, And you know what, the next day they were still on Twitter. Um, I saw a lot of people Uh, sort of read a eulogy for Twitter and all the great times they had uh, before it was going to crash and burn and disappear. And there again, Twitter uh, persevered. So I'm still waiting for the kind of Armageddon on Twitter.
0: Nifa, so Twitter seems to be, at least for the moment, here to stay. But um, a lot of people have had to leave. They've been pushed down in mass firings. How is that affecting the company and, and their public affairs possibilities here?
5: Um, we've seen reports that about half of the company's 7,500 employees were cut. Uh, we see some particular departments completely removed, like communications. We see public policy is, is now very, very thin. I mean, they've just done a massive clear out. Uh, we can see in the Brussels office it went down from six to two. And uh, We saw the very well-known head of the office, Stephen Turner out on his ear, which is a real pity, Um, It's quite sad, actually, people you've worked with for years. And I imagine for regulators too, that's very hard. Who do you call? And there's an awful lot happening where they need to call Twitter. It's got data protection issues. It's got the content moderation issues, which are just about to blow up. We've got the Digital Services Act coming in soon. And, And how is any large content company going to deal with those things when the people who are supposed to be watching that aren't engineers and are able to talk to regulators, aren't even there to have the conversations?
0: What are regulators? Are they are they doing anything? Or are they just like calling and nobody's home? And and how how could this actually affect Twitter if nobody's there?
5: Well, we we can see that they've uh, for data protection, for example, they have an acting data protection officer, which is a legal requirement under GDPR. Um, so there is somebody supposedly there, but when you don't have people with experience or a long relationship, that's always very difficult. I can imagine that Twitter simply isn't at the party anymore. I mean, the whole point of having an office in Brussels or any big city is that you're having ongoing conversations and ongoing relationships to have somebody on the dial when you need them, that you can reach somebody fast. And that's not there right now, and that's quite frightening for both regulators and for the company going forward.
0: Anifa, you've been a long-time reporter in Brussels. Have you seen anything like this before?
5: No, and especially digital lobbying has been one of the safe, nice jobs you would meet someone who landed a job at Google or Facebook and they were very happy with themselves. You know, it was exciting. It was fun. It was quite sexy. And we haven't seen this happen. I mean, there was also some layoffs at Meta
0: and we see hiring freezes in other places. So the good days do seem to have ended. Yeah. And Nick, I know that you wanted to jump in there on one of those points about regulators. I know you've been talking to privacy to some of the top privacy regulators.
2: Yeah. um, I just want to mention, we, we ran into Helen Dixon, who's the top data regulator in, in Europe for Twitter and one of the things she pointed out was that investigations are slow. So any investigation into Twitter will pretty much, or, or into the events since Musk took over, has only just started. Um, but they expect that if they ask Twitter, uh, they would need to get every decision documented. So there has to be people in place who are able to document Every decision they make on content, for example, the blue tick scheme, that should all be documented. She was saying, well, I'm really doubtful that anyone is even in place to uh, collect those documents. And she also mentioned that how fast everything had gone there, that she had met the former uh, head of global privacy at Twitter on a Monday, and by Thursday, he was gone. And uh, the company got back and said, well, it's this other guy now, but whose team has also been decimated in Dublin where their European uh, HQ is. So she was saying, well, obviously we don't have investigations that have concluded uh, because that takes a long time. But you can imagine that a lot of things are kicking off now and that may come home to roost in months or years. And the fines attached to, you know, if they find wrongdoing are in the billions.
0: Well, so there are those decisions about Twitter and how it sort of operates as the actual product, the actual social media platform, but there are also their decisions about firing all these people en masse. And uh, that's not necessarily so hard to do uh, in the United States, but there are different rules in Europe. Nick, what have you been hearing about that?
2: Yeah. I mean, they obviously didn't consult uh, a whole room of European labor lawyers before they decided to fire these people. But effectively, it doesn't work the same way. Uh, you need to fire people for cause. You need to consult with unions. You can't simply declare that people's contracts have terminated. So those people end up in the weird situation where they're effectively fired or no longer able to log into the Twitter website but legally speaking, they feel that they still work there and they probably have decent cases if they if they are being terminated to, to bring those to, you know, ombudsmen and, and, and labor lawyers and, and uh, actually ask Twitter to, to compensate them for the firing. Um, so that looks like a major mess um, that will probably take months and years to clean up for Twitter as all of these European employees say, well, you know, you got to rewind and play by the rules.
0: Maybe a good time to get into the uh, the labor law business if your tech job isn't working out. But, um, IFA we have been seeing a lot of um, important, really landmark legislation coming out of Brussels, meant to kind of police uh, social media platforms and the speech that takes place on them. Elon Musk's vision, as he has articulated it, is to create a more free speech-oriented platform. He just let Donald Trump back on. He just let uh, the artist formerly known as Kanye West back on, despite making anti-Semitic comments. Is that going to fly in Europe? It
5: might not. Um, It depends what people say. So having Trump there and having Kanye West there are not necessarily a problem. But what are they saying? And I, and I think they're not the problem necessarily. It's the fact that you have bots and that you have vast waves of propaganda, that you have abuse you, and that this is the, the platform is supposed to be trying to crack down on some of this cancelling accounts. You know, there are consequences for bad actions. And when that isn't happening, that's very problematic. The, the, the free speech is not necessarily guaranteed in Europe. It depends what you say. And there are tighter rules on what you can do and what you can share. And so we have content moderation rules on one side of it, but we also have something like child sexual abuse material rules coming down the line. Twitter or any kind of network that shares what is illegal offline needs to be very careful and needs to show that it's doing something. Uh, this is when, when there aren't the people in place to make this happen and there aren't the, the systems there, that, that is very problematic for any network. I mean, it's, it's actually a big test, though, for regulators. I mean, what are they going to do? Could they actually pull the plug on a global network because it isn't obeying content moderation? I don't know, because most other networks have tried to abide by the rules. And it, we haven't been in a situation where we're seeing a network that just isn't trying.
2: Let's just add a, a quick point to that. The, the European law has just been uh, enacted But you already have content laws in place in France and Germany. So that's a real live situation where if they're found in breach, those regulators can act against Twitter. But the issue is that a lot of that relies on self-reporting, that it's Twitter that's reporting to the regulator what content it has taken down. Now, what happens when you fire all the content moderators and there's no one to report it? It's really a completely unforeseen situation. And I I wonder what the regulators are up to. The French digital minister has already warned that they're concerned about this.
0: We've seen Elon Musk be confrontational with governments before. And he's won some fights in Europe, even on unrelated things, such as the the big Tesla plant that he wanted to make in Germany. He ultimately got his way on that. Um, so I've been talking to some people in town who say, look, you know, the guy created Tesla, the guy created PayPal. You can't count him out. So we will see if he tries to take on the Berlayment. But uh, in the interim, we are all figuring out where we should be talking if I know you have a reporter kind of seeing where people are going, and it sounds like it's to some extent sort of divided a bit based on taste, but there are also some uh, geographical particularities that are driving where people are heading instead of Twitter.
5: I mean, it's a good question because it depends where your friends are. I mean, you go where they are. Um, I see a lot of lawyers on LinkedIn, for example, but maybe that suits lawyers. We hear that in some Eastern European countries. Facebook is still very much a thing where you use countries like Germany nobody uses it. What I am seeing is that a lot of conversations are happening in more closed circles. The nice thing about Twitter was that it was fairly open and anybody could join. And if you had an intelligent thing to say, you could join, the jump in and add yourself to a debate And or you, you learned a lot just by reading it. But if those debates are happening now by private messaging, and I suspect that they are, whether it's WhatsApp or Signal or Telegram, that is a much more closed world. You need to be invited into that. And that's that's what I hear when I chat to people. That's that seems to be where a lot of the real policy conversation has gone to, which is a little bit more worrying in terms of also for us as journalists that you're not seeing that, but also that it's it's harder to reach people. Twitter was very open, and I think a lot of people who usually live behind a desk came out into the world and had their say, and you you saw a human side of people, and I and I
0: worry that that will disappear a little bit. Twitter for humanity. Who would have thunk it? Thanks so much, Eva. Thank you. Thank you, Nick.
2: Thanks for having us.
0: Now let's turn our focus back to the war in Ukraine.
6: The new Russian
3: strategy responds to losses on the battlefield with a targeting of gas, water, and above all, electrical infrastructure designed to harm millions of
2: Ukrainians as winter's cold begins to bite. Meantime, the first snow fell in Kiev. Well, Russia, but across the
1: country, as temperatures plunge below zero, an estimated 10 million households still without power. The capital under rolling blackouts, the
6: Ukraine, is to be the harshest winter since independence 30 years ago.
0: As winter arrives in the war-torn country, our colleague Jamie Detmer sat down with the mayor of Kyiv, Vitali Klitschko, in his office in the Ukrainian capital earlier this week. Over to you, Jamie.
6: Uh, Thanks, Sarah. Uh, The last time I sat down with Klitschko, the former boxing champion, was back in 2014 during the Maidan uprising. And I had an apartment over the road from Kiev City Hall where my interview this week was conducted. We met on the ninth floor of the building, a rectangular office full of boxing memorabilia and models of future building projects. He was wearing green camouflage and there was some body armour stored in the corner. And he outlined for me with great intensity the winter challenges for Kiev, which is already being lashed by snow and freezing rain and enduring sub-zero temperatures. His main point, Sarah, was that he's not planning a mass evacuation for Kiev. It's not the option to leave the country.
3: Russians expect they will be to make a playhouse if we, everybody... Moved away to, to the West. The main goals of uh, his reckless attack to bring depression to the people and leave the country. They don't achieve the goals. People, after the reckless attack, not depressed,
6: very angry, ready to fight. He wants to keep the city warm and heated, and is preparing for that. Uh, he's urging residents to stock up on what they'll need to endure the winter. Warm clothes. Uh, we need um, uh, sleeping bags. And he himself uh, is setting up about 1,000 a- centres, mainly at schools and preschools, which will be heated and will be stocked with food and medical supplies. But he's saying that people should remember Ukrainian soldiers are suffering even more on the front lines than the residents are in Kiev.
3: One uh, soldier told are you complaining about them uh, you doesn't have electricity you doesn't have a heating and you doesn't have water we stay here almost one year no water, no electricity, nothing and we're fighting every day and we died almost every day for you. Please don't complain. If you have some problems, think about us, about our condition, and stay strong. And that's why the people understand that very much and don't complain about uh, problems what they have. But we do it everything what is what we can to give the services to our citizens. Yes, of course, right now the temperature in apartments a little bit lower than before. Yes, of course, it's not uh, electricity uh, always 24 hours because sometimes we switch some districts from electricity, but heating works almost every building. Electricity, not temporary. have everyone. We have medical support. We have, by the way, we... Do it education, our school and preschool working in this period of time also, and that's why our it's also the signal to the Russians. We doesn't have a panic. We still living in our homes, and we don't want to leave, and we will be ready to fight for our cities.
6: You can hear Sarah Klitschko's passion in his voice. He's been in tight corners before when a heavyweight boxer, but now he's really in the bout of his life. Both the Russians and Ukrainians are hoping to exploit the frigid winter to their advantage. The Russians hope what they call General Winter will wear the Ukrainians down. The Ukrainians hope General Frostbite will further erode the morale of Russia's poorly equipped and clothed troops on the front lines. Kiev will be critical if Ukraine is to defeat General Winter, and Klitschko will be a key player.
0: Thanks so much, Jamie, and stay safe. Uh, thank you. We'll be right back with a thought-provoking discussion about the challenges the European Union faces as a so-called superstate. Stay with us. It's that time of the year.
1: Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise, and guidance. To more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade.
0: Alastair Roberts is a professor of public policy at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He writes extensively on problems of governance, law, and public policy. His new book, Superstates, Empires of the 21st Century, is being published in the first week of December and will include a link in our show notes. Alistair, thank you so much for being with us today.
4: It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Let's start with the obvious question for our listeners. What is a Superstate.
4: Well, the book got going because I just started thinking about the challenge, the extraordinary experiment that we're doing this century, where we're going to have four major polities, China, India, the European Union, which I'm going to count as a super state, and the United States. And you know, the population in these four places is going to account for 40% of world population, and each one of them is massive by historical standards. And the question I was asking is, why do we imagine that it's possible to govern societies this big and complex. And what I've done is I've looked to history for some lessons. I've looked to the history of empires and I just dis- define a super state as an entity that has is sort of a hybrid form. It's It's part empire, part state. It deals with all of those problems of governing at scale, governing diversity and complexity that empires dealt with. But it's Each of these polities also carries all the burdens of being a modern state. You have to govern more intensively. You have to provide more services. You have to provide a higher level of security and so on. So it's a hybrid form, part empire, part state. And the thing I'm interested in is how these four polities will manage these twin burdens in the coming decades.
0: And so you talk about the United States, China, India, countries, and then the European Union. And, you know, we hear at EU, confidential, spoiler alert, we're the most interested in the EU. So can you kind of explain why the EU fits this definition that otherwise it's just countries?
4: Well, and that's, I think, going to be the one point at which people sort of say, push back and say, well, wait a minute. And I, I should say, too, you know, in the EU, there is has been a practice of of describing the EU as a super state, very often by Euro skeptics. And what they have in their mind is this highly centralized form of polity in which Brussels is giving instructions to everybody else. That's not what I have in mind when I'm talking about a super state. I do say in the past, a vast polities could be very loosely joined, and the EU has that character. I call it a superstate because when you look at the EU as a whole, including the EU institutions and the national and subnational institutions... As a whole, that apparatus, that complex, performs the functions we associate with statehood. But it's also big and diverse. And and I put these four polities in the same box. I don't call the EU a country. I put them in the box because I argue that these are four polities that are basically wrestling with the same dilemma, which is, how do you govern massive, diverse polities? How do you maintain order, achieve prosperity, respect human rights, they're pursuing four fundamentally different strategies, but they all confront the same problem of governing at scale.
0: And how would you characterize the EU's strategy?
4: Well, I I say in the book that, you know, the EU's approach is distinctive because its approach involves minimizing coercion, because human rights has always been so central to the credo. Uh, That's part of the mission, the grand enterprise of the EU. And that decision to minimize resort to coercion results in a very distinctive governing style where you've got authority that is highly decentralized. Uh, There's a great deal of emphasis on democratization within the nation states. The center is um, more complex. So I basically say of these four polities I'm looking at, the, the EU is distinguished by this emphasis on minimizing coercion and extensive decentralization. And I also argue that if you want to govern at scale while respecting human rights, there's a lot to be said for the EU formula.
0: So there in this moment is a lot of frustration among some, in the, especially in Brussels, about this lack of coercion. They see countries like Poland and Hungary, um, especially Hungary lately, using its veto power to prevent more decisive action. The commission has also been reluctant to use some of the tools available to it um, to coerce those countries to do things in the rule of law area that they would like them to see. So what's your sense of, of how, do you have a sense of how the EU institutions should proceed in the wake of these sort of political challenges?
4: I think this may not answer your question directly, but one big point that I emphasize in this book is the notion that supersized polities are inherently fragile. You know, we have this notion in political science that a good polity is one that's stable, it's solid, it's not crisis-prone. And then when you look at a polity like the EU, you say, wait a minute, you know, it doesn't meet those criteria. But one of the arguments I make is that instability or fragility is sort of inherent in all of these supersized polities. And you can see concerns... About fragility coming up again in the u s you can see it in India. it's a historic concern. The Chinese obsess about stability maintenance. everybody's dealing with this question of how you hold things together and I would basically argue that all all of these supersized polities deal with these problems of diversity and disagreement, and they wrestle with how to deal with it. you know the when we talk about red-blue polarization in the United States, as I say in the book, we're very often talking about substantial differences between regions on basic questions of political order, what a good society looks like, questions of fundamental rights. So there may be frustration in the EU, but you know there's equal frustration in the US. And then the question is how you negotiate these differences and preserve the Union.
0: You made an interesting point in the book that it's easy in this moment to be like, oh, my God, there are two million different crises going on at once. And, you know, you, you invoked the term um, polycrisis. But you had kind of a different take that maybe we don't need to be lighting our hair on fire. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
4: Uh, so this is sort of I want to be careful about how, how I thread the needle here. Because, uh, you know, the conventional knock, especially with regard to the EU, is that it's crisis prone. And there is a danger and there was always a danger in empires of what many scholars now are calling polycrisis. I call them cascading hazards. One, one crisis bumping into and compounding another one or triggering another one. But the argument I make is this was sort of life. This is the natural state of governing at scale. When you build polities, these large and complex, you're opening yourself up to a broader range of hazards. And you're increasing the risk that these hazards will compound one another. So the fact that you confront one crisis after another, well, obviously, we won't want to manage these crises well. But the, the mere fact that you're encountering uh, successive crises does not mean that something is wrong. That basically is life when you're governing at scale.
0: And so with that in mind, what is the biggest threat in your view to the survival of the European Union?
4: What I observe in the abstract is, you know, the w- there's a hard constraint that we want to observe, which is that we want to create regimes that respect human rights. You know, the Chinese have got a model for stability, maintenance and holding things together, but very often it involves fundamental uh, restrictions of human rights. We don't want to go down that path. So we have to find a model for governing at scale that allows us to respect human rights and, and human freedom. And the observation I make is some of the su- suggestions I make is that we wanna be careful about over Moving too many functions up to the center can be potentially difficult. We want to uh, make sure we preserve some flexibility, adaptability, especially at the center in terms of knowing how to negotiate new circumstances and then uh, I think you want to think very carefully about how you apply sort of conventional democratic principles to the center of a, of a super state as well. It's tough to do. And then the other observation, the sort of big observation I make is that there's a certain mentality you have to have when you're governing a super state, which is you have to be attentive to dangers You have to be aware of fragility. You have to recognize that a large part of your job consists of managing differences, working through problems. And of course, I think the, over the past decades, the EU leadership has been actually very good at doing that. Um, And I would actually say, you know, very often um, American observers criticize the uh, way that the EU leadership works. The distinctive competence of the EU is in terms of managing differences and working through problems. And one might argue that the distinctive problem of the Americans in the present context is lacking that skill in you know, working through problems of polarization and division.
0: Fair enough. And last question, if you could sort of snap your fingers and either solidify these superstates or break them up which would you do like is there an inherent value in a superstate or is it just sort of a reality of the world today
4: well you know like an interesting question is uh, why are these supersized polities necessary and you know the usual argument is well some problems are too big for conventionally sized governments to manage The one point I do make is that, you know, you encounter certain problems when you centralize as well. Overload at the center and problems of bureaucratism. And I could throw in another one, problems of legitimacy just because of the sheer size of the enterprise. So you're in the world of the second best, and it it might end up being the case that the world is actually governed better by smaller, somewhat smaller sized units. One thing I do touch on at the end of the book that I should probably should have dwelt on in a little more detail is just the likely impact of climate change on all of these polities. Because I observe in the book that historically, one of the killers of empires was climate change, which usually triggered a bunch of other problems. And when you look at the projected impact of climate change over coming decades, uh, if you look at a map of what zones of the world are likely to be rendered uninhabitable, for example, because of extreme heat, or where agricultural productivity is likely to decline, you're looking at southern China, a big swath of northern India, southern Europe and North Africa, and a big chunk of the southwest of the United States. So, you know, there's a destabilizing factor that's going to hit all of these super states over the coming decades. And I think we may be optimists if we think that all of these polities are going to survive intact over the coming century.
0: All right. Well, that is an unsettling but appropriately forward-looking point to end (laughs) on.
4: (laughs) So, Alistair Roberts, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking with you.
0: And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Suzanne will be back next week. In the meantime, please do follow the podcast wherever you're listening. And if you have ideas for guests or topics we should cover, or you want to send us some feedback, you can email our team at podcast at politico.eu. I'm Sarah Wheaton in Brussels. This week's episode was produced by our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. Our editor is James Randerson. Thanks to Ellen Bonin for assistance on recording. And thanks to you
6: for listening.